Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We're doing Slipknot? No, uh, here comes Sunshine. Looks like we got some good old boys in the pit in front. Yeah. It's weird when all those cameras look like guns. <laughs> Don't say the G word. Stop it, Mick. I got the gallows humor. There were bad things happening that summer. I mean, Jerry wasn't well, and Jerry wasn't even remembering his words. But it was just falling apart. This is journalist Steve Bloom. When you have to just come and go, you're just too fly by night. But if you're there for a couple of days, you're going to run into everybody. Walk around the lots, run into friends, find this bus that you like, find the burrito bus, find this, find that. You had the landmarks of people that you knew you'd find on tour. Those are the fun scenes where they didn't run you out. If they're doing two shows at Foxborough, you can stay overnight. That was good. When they didn't let you, that was the problem. They pushed you out, you gotta go. People don't have any place to stay. They gotta stay in hotels everywhere instead of just camping out in their bands and stuff. Things were, were not great in the 90s for the dead as the scene was growing bigger and as it was a little more and more out of control and there was more and more targeting of the deadheads for their drug use by security and police forces. That was a lot of horses in the lot and a lot of tension and a lot of dispersing of people, moving people around, harassing, threatening. And I wrote a story actually, another story I wrote for High Times, actually a cover story called Fighting for Your Right to Party. You know, the heads are out there doing their thing and they're a community that's fighting for the right to be out there and doing what they're doing. But it's more like the right to be who you are. This is who we are. You know, this is what we do. And we're fighting for that right while we're being seriously persecuted by the police and by security people who don't like what we do and what we stand for and think we're a bunch of druggies. Thumbing our nose at the law and we should go out and arrest them. And they did. You know, they went and arrested a lot of people. I mean, I had a good friend who ended up in jail for a long time on an LSD charge, busted in a Grateful Dead lot, you know, by an undercover NAR. So you can kind of feel it, that things weren't right. And as it turned out, it wasn't. Turn the snare drum down a little bit and turn the hat up a little. Why does it smell like cow dinner? Got the smell of fear. <laughs> In 1995, the Grateful Dead started their final tour. He didn't know it yet, but Indiana would be the third to last show for Jerry Garcia. Jerry's health was going downhill fast. 
but he insisted on keeping the show going. Jerry was overweight, smoked, and found out he had a heart condition. I wrote a book called Drunk on Sunday, which is, is fictionalized, but a big part of it is, is my 138 dead shows, which in, in Grateful Dead terms is not so crazy. But um, I had seen them at the Garden. I saw them at Giant Stadium in the summer of 89. I had been to the Brendan Byrne Arena in, in March of 88. This is Ross Warner, author and longtime deadhead that was at the show in Indiana in 1995. Deer Creek was this amazing place that I had always heard about. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden. It was literally by a creek. It was much smaller than any other venue. They scheduled it for July 4th weekend, so the shows were on July 2nd and July 3rd. Somebody had given like kind of a, you know, an anonymous call whose daughter I think had run off with the dead. Obviously there's so many stories about that and they'd said, I'm like, shoot Jerry Garcia. So I guess they had offered the band not to play and um, Jerry, even in his kind of withered state, kind of made some black humor joke, like, you know, they're still gonna do it anyways. It's weird when all those cameras look like guns. There were metal detectors, which was very weird. I'd never seen a metal detector at a Grateful Dead concert. They started on time, which for most of my dead show tenure, they didn't. There weren't a lot of people there for the first set, and, and I felt like a lot of people were getting shut out. From where I was standing, but you could see and hear the screaming. You couldn't really see over the lawn, but you could see, obviously, there was something going on in the back. Deadheads being deadheads, but also, I, I guess, you know, the behavior got a little more unruly. It was midway through the first set. A scream went up. Nobody really knew what was going on. They pulled down the fence. I could kind of see, you know, it really was a very flimsy plywood fence. You'd think for a venue. I mean, it, I think I described it in my book. It was like a Tom Sawyer fence. Through the bourbon and the, and the show, I uh, wasn't really thinking clearly. They just played like a great Let It Grow. But you can hear when after Bob Weir sings, Riot Squad, they're getting restless. They're getting ready for the show. Like a cheer goes up. And I, I believe that, yeah, that's when people realized what was going on. Check out the back wall. This is actual audio from the monitor feed at the show Ross attended in Indiana. In the middle of a song, you can hear him say, check out that back wall, as the fence comes down. After I listened to the whole show on this feed, the band definitely seemed paranoid. You know, once they pulled it down, it's not like everybody in the world went in there because obviously they were tear gassing people. So I don't even know how they fortified that border for the remainder of the show. I guess they really didn't. That kind of, you know, screw the man mentality definitely still existed. And Jerry never signed on to be basically the, the mayor of a traveling town, which is what he felt like he was. You know, there's a riot on going out on outside. There's no need to drag this on. Jerry Garcia could feel the fear within him growing. The camera lens he saw pointed at him from out in the crowd at the Deer Creek Music Center didn't look like a camera lens. It was like he was staring down the barrel of a handgun. And the house lights went on, which was atypical for a show like this. Jerry knew it was necessary, but every time those lights got caught up in that lens, it shot back a flicker to where we stood on stage. Even more alarming was when the camera flashed, and Jerry braced himself and waited for the inevitable gunshot. He had put on a brave face backstage before the show started back when, for a brief moment, 
the Grateful Dead considered not taking the stage at all. When the band arrived at the Indiana venue for the first of two consecutive nights, they were immediately met by Ken Viola, head of security for Metropolitan Entertainment. The company employed to keep the dead safe as their shows continued to grow and the crowds grew more unwieldy and unpredictable. Viola played them a voicemail message that had been left for local law enforcement just that afternoon. And the caller claimed he had overheard the ramblings of the inconsolable father of a missing deadhead. The man didn't know where his daughter had run off to. He suspected she was following the band. He blamed one person, and he was going to murder that person. Tonight, at Deer Creek. And that person was Jerry Garcia. Phil Lesh thought of his own family and panicked, and Jerry laughed it off. And they'd all heard crazy shit before. It was probably nothing. And even if it was a legitimate threat, no one ever really went through with that kind of thing. Not at a show. Jerry's relaxed but cavalier attitude put the rest of the band at ease, and they carried on as if it was just another night. But it wasn't just another night. There were precautions in place. A metal detector at the gate, plainclothes cops stationed strategically near the front of the stage. The house lights were left on for the entire show. As that show went on, Jerry began to experience something he hadn't experienced before. At least he hadn't experienced it in such a visceral way. Fear. Paranoia. Not the hippy-dippy paranoia of the 1960s when you smoked grass and worried someone was going to squeal to the cops. This was 1990s paranoia. Real fear. Far fucking out, man. Jerry began to sweat. Not just from those bright house lights. Something about this threat about this particular situation felt different. Maybe it was Phil's reaction backstage, or the fact that the cops were taking it so seriously. Or maybe it was this fucking song, Dire Wolf, the one they'd been playing for 20-something years, but only now, tonight, felt like less of a song and more like an end-of-life plea. Jerry's eyes scanned the crowd. Was that guy here? Did he make it past the metal detectors with a concealed weapon? Were the plainclothes cops actually paying attention? Was anyone really safe? There were so many people out there. A sea of tie-dye and denim and puka shell necklaces and ponytails. Jerry couldn't be sure. There could be a gun trained on his head right now. All he could do was play on and hope the refrain he was singing didn't fall on deaf ears. Please, don't murder me. By 1995, the Grateful Dead were the top-earning touring act in the country. They cleared upwards of $45 million in 1993 and then $52 million in 1994. But though the Dead were making money hand over fist, touring life circa the mid-90s was no longer a golden road. The touches of gray were everywhere, most notably in Jerry Garcia, and I'm not talking about his hair color. Jerry was having a hard time playing like he used to play. His arteries were clogged, which meant he wasn't able to actually feel the guitar pick in his hand. He was wrestling with carpal tunnel syndrome and diabetes. And by this point, his drug of choice was no longer weed or acid, but heroin. His moods swung. He flubbed notes. He forgot lyrics. And so the Grateful Dead's guiding star was undoubtedly a dark star by the time their 1995 summer began. The Dead's frontman was little more than a strung-out hippie with a teddy bear beard. And just the same, shows sold out well in advance and anticipation was high. But the omens were right there for all to see. At the tour's first show in Vermont, 
20,000 people showed up without tickets. And the venue was so overwhelmed by the crush of bodies that organizers had no choice but to open up the gates and let them in for free. In Albany, the issue wasn't what was happening offstage, but onstage. Jerry needed Bob Weir to show him what to play on his guitar before he could summon the physical and mental ability to actually begin the second set. Teleprompters on stage were now the norm. In Washington, D.C., it got freakier. Three deadheads were struck by lightning as they huddled under a tree outside the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium. And then, later in the tour, at Riverport Amphitheater outside St. Louis, Missouri, a structure collapsed at a nearby campground seriously injuring hundreds of concertgoers and paralyzing one of them. But it was the show immediately prior to the St. Louis show, on July 2nd, at the Deer Creek Music Center in Noblesville, Indiana, that would go down as one of the main reasons why the 1995 summer tour would later be referred to as the Tour of Doom. While Jerry Garcia was busy worrying whether or not he was going to be shot dead by an unstable father of a missing deadhead, 20,000 people without tickets gathered outside the fence surrounding the venue. Unlike the Vermont show from weeks earlier, however, organizers didn't open the gates to let the freeloaders in. So about 5,000 of those people began to climb the fences, and they tore pieces out, they kicked holes in it, bodies poured over it and crashed through it, one after the other like the fence was merely a suggestion. Jerry and the dead looked out from the stage and immediately thought of all the other times they'd watched as crowds came rushing wildly into a venue without tickets in their hands. Woodstock, Altamont, Watkins Glen. But this wasn't 1969 or 1973. This was 1995. Things were different now. You could feel it in the air. Jerry could feel it in his veins. And he wasn't just worried about some crazed gunman in the crowd anymore. He was worried that if he wasn't trampled dead in the oncoming riot, he'd have to figure out a way to repeat this entire clusterfuck of an experience the following night, July 3rd, for show number two at the Deer Creek Music Center. But there would be no second show. The next morning, as the damage to the venue was assessed and reports that the Indiana State Police riot squad had used tear gas and pepper spray in their response to corral the chaos, one thing was for sure, no one wanted to do it again. Not the cops, not the venue staff, and certainly not the band. It was the first time the Grateful Dead had ever canceled a show in three decades because of an unruly crowd. The ideals they had put forth in song and the communal feel they had fostered with years of touring made them successful beyond their wildest dreams, but now it was all beyond their control. Their fortress of peace and love was no longer impenetrable. And maybe it was really time to leave this broke down palace. Fare you well, indeed, deadheads. Here's Todd Matthews. Billy Smolensky. I remember talking to the mom, and I was looking through just to make sure, dental records, these were his only dentist. I said, what about fingerprints? And she said, hmm, no, just that one thumbprint when he applied for that job. She had a fingerprint record. It was only one, but one's better than nothing. So I said, actually, you did have something. Her perception was the standard 10 print. She really hadn't considered, but if we'd had a conversation, I probably could have got that much earlier. Not that it impacted his case at all, but what if it does? NamUs is going to be very clinical. It's going to be very focused on dental DNA and fingerprints. You're not going to see cause and manner of death in an unidentified person. Whereas in an unidentified in a newspaper article, if it was written in a local newspaper article and we have it, 
Doe Network will state the cause and manner of death, which could be important, but it's not something that a government database can share. There's a little more wiggle room with Doe Network. You know, we can sit down and look at something on a case-by-case basis and make a decision if there's something that we're aware of, language that maybe NamUs wouldn't want to use, we can. We can say. There are opportunities to bring back something of a person that gives a memory. You know, and I always say that these are like echoes of a person. Don't look for a portrait. But I don't want to do a facial reconstruction or have it commissioned so detailed that it would limit its ability. Like, I've had people say, no, her hair wouldn't be that way, or this. And it's like, it has to come with language. It has to come with some instructions. It can't just be a picture. We're not matching up old maid. And I've literally had uh, some sleuths, they'll find a body that was found before a person went missing, and they say, could it be an error? Most of the time, it's not. Even if it looks just like them, you know, you're looking at documented dates here and here. Now, could things be off a day or two when you're looking at post-mortem interval? Could, yeah. But if you're looking at years and you have documented news articles, unless we're traveling in time, these things are not going to happen. Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey. I want to take a minute to pause here. So much of the show revolves around the idea of communities working together to get answers. And recently, one of the listeners left a review on the podcast with some information about Jennifer Wilmer. But it seems as though it was taken down. And because there's no way to contact someone who reviews a podcast, I wanted to let you know that at any time you can go to deadandgonepodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom. There's a contact button. If you click that, you can submit any information regarding these cases. If it's a clue, please also send to law enforcement. But if it's some information that might reach the right person and connect some dots, please share it, and I'll do my best to get it on the show. Not every police department has a cold case unit, and these are real people. They had real families and real friends who want answers. You never know what you might know. It's, it's usually the subtle things that could throw things off. You know, it, it does take reading and understanding and absorbing what you're reading. The cyber sleuths can help. You know, I know a lot of law enforcement consider them busybodies, and often it's because of things that they're throwing out that we've already heard before. We build in something to name us because of that. We built in what we had, and we modeled it after Doe Network. At Doe Network, we had a database that we kept rule outs in. We would call them rule outs. And, you know, they ended up being called exclusions and NamUs, and they're partially published. So if a, if a case has been compared, this person and this person, 
And law enforcement said, no, it's not a match because of DNA or fingerprints. We will log it into NamUs as this so that that suggestion won't come up time and time again and become monotonous. Now, I did go, while we were in the process of developing this for NamUs, I looked at some of the exclusions or ruled out Indo Network, and I wanted to seat them in NamUs so they'd be publicly viewable because our database was sort of online at Indo Network, offline. So in the process of doing that, I found at least one that was a near error because I wanted to go back and I realized a dental exclusion had to be verified in NamUs by somebody qualified to do it. And when we had somebody qualified to go back and do it, they found the dental record was inverted. So the dental x-ray they were looking at had been flipped and there's a notch in the corner of dental x-rays that a trained person would have seen. And it didn't happen. So something that Doe Network was saying at the time, no, that's an exclusion, don't worry about that one, turned out, well, we received an error and we proliferated that error out there. So luckily with NamUs, you know, we could go back and say, if we want to seat this as a legitimate one in NamUs, it's not just a person on the telephone telling us, no, I don't think so. Or it's not eye color. Like, there's no exclusion seated in NamUs based on eye color or hair color. It's just too ambiguous. It has to be dental, DNA, or fingerprints. Some type of science has to come back and confirm that. It can't be just a guessing game or just not likely, you know. And, and with Name It, Don't Network, we had all of that. You know, whatever they told us on the telephone, whether they gave us a real reason for exclusion, we had to accept that is what it was, you know, because that the volunteers would not always have access to cause and manner of death unless somebody decided to just share that with them. It's not a data set that we would collect. I had a cousin who was constantly in trouble with law enforcement. When his mother died in the 90s, we couldn't find him. He wasn't considered a missing person. He was just off the grid. He didn't want to be found. He had warrants out for some petty things on his criminal record, but uh, certainly he wasn't somebody that was going to stick his head up for air at his mother's funeral if she had been there because they would have known he would have been there. Should he have been considered a missing person? Probably yes at some point. When you're gone for a long period of time, you can't just say, well, your criminal record prevents us from calling you a missing person because these people do die. When we first had NamUs developed, there was a living John Doe in Texas. They didn't know his name, and he was in the hospital. He was found on the street. He had had a brain injury, really couldn't talk to people, but he was living. I entered him into NamUs in the unidentified side, which usually means you're dead. But I was trying to trick the system to the point that it would be eligible for some of the collection of records. And we did go on to develop a living unidentified database. It gave us the latitude to go and say, okay, you do qualify because you meet this criteria. We collected a reference sample from him and his fingerprint. So I was thinking that, all right, we'll match him to somebody. He's got to be missing from somewhere. But I was thinking about my own cousin's case. I thought, well, there's, here's a way, here's a way. Well, he was matched, and we did identify that man through his fingerprint records. They had never been run in that particular way. So they matched that unidentified homeless man in Texas to a criminal charge, and he did get arrested for damaging a garbage can at some point in time. Later on, we found it was a particularly cold night. He was in that garbage can to eat. And I think his arrest that night probably could have been a mercy arrest so that he'd have a warm place to stay that night. 
How long ago? How much earlier? He was an unidentified in that hospital for years. What if we just ran his fingerprint? Why couldn't we? Before having to go force it with something like NamUs. It's not that hard to run a person's fingerprint. I guess, looking back at it now, we just had to have a mechanism to do so. We made that because we realized there was a need for that. You're not going to have a lot of living John and Jane Doe's, but they do exist, they do occur, and now at least we have a protocol for dealing with that. Last season, Payne mentioned a Jane Doe case in episode one. Since then, more information has come to light. On October 26, 1991, a woman was found murdered in the woods of Warren County, New Jersey. The only clue as to her identity was a large tattoo of a tiger on her left leg. Later, it was discovered that the tattoo was the same tiger design on Jerry Garcia's guitar. Her identity remains unknown. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In serial killer cases or other missing persons type cases, if you can find a commonality to find another way to group people or index them, it might be the key. Back in the day, you know, I know they had records of tattoos, that type of thing, but I don't know how broadly they were shared. And certainly if they weren't shared to the public, you're not going to recognize them. Family members are the ones that's going to recognize those things. The most intimate things about a person Placements of a mole, scars, marks, tattoos. You know, and often even family don't know. I remember a case where there was an identification and the mother said, no, he didn't have a tattoo. Yes, he did. He just didn't tell you. But other family members knew about that. Those things are very important. It's not really helpful to gather a bunch of identifiable data if there was no way to share it. The internet was not what it is today, or even just a couple of years later. It was very different, so the ability to share that would have been limited to newspaper articles and local news broadcast. A teenager vanished 30 years ago, and investigators have finally identified her. The body was discovered by a group of hunters in a wooded area off of Interstate 80. At the time, the teen had been nicknamed the Tiger Lady because of a large tiger tattoo on her calf. Police say her tattoo is similar to the tiger found on the guitar of Grateful Dead member Jerry Garcia. She was 16 years old when her body was found off Interstate 80 in Knowlton Township back in 1991. This morning, officials in Warren County identified the girl as Wendy Louise Baker. 
Her death was ruled a homicide, but investigators could never determine her manner of death. We now know the unidentified Tiger Lady, this cold case of 30 years, to be Wendy Louise Baker of Chester County, Pennsylvania. At the time of her death, she was 16 years old and was spending most of her life in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. On October 26th of 1991, the body of a white female was discovered at 1.15 p.m. by two hunters in a wooded area near a truck stop off of Interstate 80 in Knowlton Township, New Jersey. This was 16-year-old Wendy Louise Baker. Her uncle, Desi Baker, said he had dropped her off at his nephew's house, rolled down the window, and she told him she loved him. He told her he loved her too, and she walked away. And that was the last time he saw his niece. Her body was partially decomposed, and there was an autopsy that was done. It indicated that this was a homicide. The only clue that law enforcement could go off of was a large tiger tattoo on her left calf that resembled the same sticker on Jerry's guitar. She remained unidentified for 30 years, but the question still stands. Who is responsible for Wendy's death? Now, it was back in July of this year, the identification process discovered who Baker's grandparents are, which are Ernest Baker and Nina Brownwell. Through that process, they were able to track down Mr. Desi Baker, the brother of Wendy Baker's father, who passed away back in 2017. Baker's mother had passed away way back in 1999. After hundreds of tips that fell flat, the case actually did help capture serial killer Joel Rifkin in the process. He was arrested in New York. Calls that came in originally for the Tiger Lady helped solve one of those cases in connection to Rifkin. Joel Rifkin is a prolific serial killer who preyed on prostitutes in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. On August 22, 1987, Rifkin was arrested after trying to solicit an undercover female police officer. In 1989, he committed his first murder. He dismembered the body, removing the teeth and fingertips, and then he put the head in a paint can, which he left in the woods on a golf course in Hopewell, New Jersey. Over the next four years, it is assumed that he killed 16 more women. On June 28, 1993, State troopers were patrolling Long Island's Southern State Parkway and noticed a pickup without a license plate. When they went to pull him over, he took off and led them on a 30-minute high-speed chase. But he ended up crashing into a pole, and as the troopers approached, they noticed a foul smell. Rifkin had been driving around with his latest victim under a tarp in his truck. Tips that initially came in for Tiger Lady fell flat but police say these tips helped capture Joel Rifkin. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13 
and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. The show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA. Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group. Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.